Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son Jesus in Bethlehem of Judea. We thank you that he came as the bread of life to give life to the world. And we thank you for the preview that we have of that great good news in the book of Ruth. Teach us through this book, we pray, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a famine in Bethlehem. That's a hardship for Elimelech, Naomi, and their sons. But it's more than a hardship. Bethlehem means house of bread. Bethlehem is supposed to be a bread basket for ancient Israel. A famine in Bethlehem is not just a hardship. It's a contradiction. But it's not the first contradiction we have in Scripture. It's not the first time the land has failed to live up to its promise. In fact, it happens over and over again early in the Bible. Abraham no sooner gets to the land, the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey, than he finds that there's a famine in the land. And so he goes down to Egypt and finds that there's food in Egypt, and he survives and then brings his family back to the land. In the next generation, there's another famine. Isaac has to leave the land. He has to go to Gerar, outside the land, and he finds food there, and he survives so that he can later return to the land. Of course, once Joseph is sold into Egypt... He interprets Pharaoh's dream about seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh stores up food for the seven years of famine. Meanwhile, Jacob, Joseph's father, is up in the land. And when the famine hits, it hits very severely. This is the worst famine that's been recorded in Scripture. It's a very severe famine over the whole earth. Not just in the land, but over all the land surrounding it. But in Egypt, there's food. So Jacob takes his sons and their families, and he goes to Egypt, and he finds food, and stays there for a couple of centuries until they return to the land. This is supposed to be a land flowing with milk and honey, but over and over again, it proves, it, it fails to be that for the people of God. It fails to be the land of plenty. And instead... It seems as every, excuse me, as if every other land is a land flowing with milk and honey. Excuse me, every land except Israel is a land of plenty. And the same thing is happening again, the same contradiction is happening again in Bethlehem. Elimelech follows the example of Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Jacob. He goes out of the land to find food. He leaves the land, goes across the Jordan to the plains of Moab, out to the land of the Moabites, and he finds food there. It looks like a repeat of all the patriarch stories about people leaving the famine-ridden land to find food elsewhere, but it's not. 
Because as soon as Elimelech gets into Moab, things begin to go wrong. He dies. His sons marry Moabite women so they can carry on the family. But then they die. And Naomi is left with nothing. She's outside her land. She has no husband. She has no sons. She has only two daughters-in-law, and they're foreigners. This isn't what's supposed to happen when Jews and Israelites go out of the land. You're not supposed to go out of a famine-ridden land, a land of death, into another land of death. You're supposed to go out of the land of death and find Eden elsewhere. That's what happens to Abraham. Egypt is his Eden. It provides food. Isaac finds that Gerar provides food. Jacob goes out of the land, not because of a famine, but he's chased out by his brother Esau. He goes out of the land and spends time with his relative Laban. And while he's in Laban's house, he's oppressed. His wages are changed. Laban treats him very unfairly, but he multiplies and is enriched outside the land. It happens to Abraham. It happens to Jacob. It happens to Israel. They go out of the land and they multiply and increase greatly. They become a great nation while they're in the land of Goshen. And then when they leave, they visit all of their neighbors, their Egyptian neighbors, and they say, give us your stuff. Give us your gold and silver and your clothing and we'll get out of Egypt. And the plagues have so beaten down Egyptian, the Egypt that the Egyptians are only too ready to get rid of Israel no matter what it takes. Israel goes out of the land much, much larger than it went in and much, much richer. They multiply and plunder Egypt. That's how exile is supposed to go in the Bible. That is not how Naomi's exile goes. Naomi goes out with a husband and two sons and loses it all. She goes out full and she comes back empty. She goes out fruitful and hopeful and comes back bitter and barren. There's a famine in Bethlehem. That's a contradiction. But it's just as much of a contradiction for one of the, one of a, a family in Israel to go out of the land and find that they can't survive out of the land either. Ruth begins with the contradiction. It continues with another contradiction and inverted Exodus. This would be a sad story if Ruth were nothing more than an ancient short story, which is the way we often read it. We read it as a story about one family in the midst of Israel during the time of the judges and how God cared for that one family in Israel. But Ruth is about more than that. We can see this from the way the story is framed. The very first line of chapter 1 is, in the days when the judges judged. We begin in the chaotic time of the judges, when we might expect a famine, because Israel is being so unfaithful. They're turning after other gods. And so, of course, God is going to judge them by making the sky like bronze and the earth like iron. He's going to bring famine in the land. It begins in the chaotic time of the judges, but by the end of the story, we're looking forward to the kingdom. Ruth ends with a genealogy, a genealogy that traces from Judah all the way to David. The very last word of the book of Ruth is the name David. From the judges judging to the time of David, from the chaos of the judges 
to the good and prosperity and health of the kingdom of David. This is not just a story about this one family within Israel. This is a story about Israel. And Naomi is not just an old woman, a widow, who can have no more children. She represents Israel. Israel as widow. Israel as a bereft mother. Because Israel's entire calling is a maternal calling. The first gospel promise in the Bible is given to Eve after Adam and Eve sin. In the midst of all the curses, the Lord gives one ray of hope, and it's addressed to Eve. The seed of the woman will rise to crush the serpent's head. The first gospel promise is a promise of mother and child, a conquering child who's going to be born to the woman. And when Israel is called, Israel takes over the vocation of Eve. Israel is a maternal people. That's how Revelation 12 depicts the history of Israel. Uh, John sees a woman in the sky representing Israel. And she's in labor to give birth to the Messiah. That's a summary. That's a vision that summarizes all of Israel's history. Israel's history is a birth story. A very long, very difficult birth. Hundreds and hundreds of years of labor. Until Christ is formed in her. That's the whole purpose of Israel. To be the new Eve. To be a people that will produce the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent's head. And in fulfilling that promise, of course, God has to again and again overcome obstacles. Again and again, the women in Israel are barren. Sarah's barren. Rebecca's barren. Rachel is barren. The women of Israel in the land of Egypt aren't barren, but as soon as they give birth, Pharaoh snatches their children and kills them. They might as well be barren. They'd rather be barren than have their newborn children drowned in the Nile. And around Ruth's time, the wife of Manoah, Hannah, are both barren. But again and again, the Lord intervenes and miraculously opens the womb. That's not just good news for Sarah and Abraham or Rebecca and Isaac. That's good news for Israel, which means it's good news for the world. Because if Israel does not produce the seed, then there will be no seed and will stay enslaved to the serpent forever. Our whole future, the whole future of humanity rests on the promise of a birth, the the woman giving birth to the seed that will crush the serpent's head. Naomi is another in that line of barren women. She's not literally barren, of course. She had two sons. But now she's widowed. She says she's too old to get married again. She can't provide husbands for her two daughters-in-law. They're not going to wait around for, even if she could give birth, they wouldn't wait around for those two sons to grow up. She might as well be barren. She is a barren woman. She represents barren Israel. And so the the question of Ruth is not just, is God going to show faith to Elimelech and Naomi and their family? Is God going to prove himself their God? The question of Ruth, of the book of Ruth is, is God going to show himself to be God of Israel? Is he going to be faithful to his commitment to his people and restore his people to their maternal vocation to open up the womb of Israel 
so that Israel will give birth to the Christ? That's the question that's raised at the beginning of Ruth. That's the question that's posed by Ruth. It's not just a contradiction for Elimelech and Naomi and their family. It's a contradiction in God's commitment to Israel that needs to be resolved if humanity is to have any hope at all. Will God show himself faithful to Israel? Will he make the barren fruitful? And of course, the answer of Ruth is a resounding yes. Everything that's wrong at the beginning of the book is transformed by the end of the book. We begin in the chaos of the judges. We end looking forward to the time of David. The book begins in famine. But even by the end of the first chapter, when Naomi returns, it's the beginning of the barley harvest. There's food in Bethlehem. There's bread again in the house of bread. The famine is over. And then Boaz continuously supplies Ruth with more than she needs, not only to feed herself, but to feed Naomi. They go from hunger to fullness. Elimelech and Naomi leave the land, but by the end of the story, that land is restored to Ruth, therefore to Naomi's family and to her progeny. They go out landless, and they find rest in the land. In chapter 1, there are three widows, not just Naomi, but Ruth and Orpah as well. (coughs) Excuse me. By the end of the book, Ruth is a bride, no longer a widow, but a wife to Boaz. At the beginning of the story, the sons of Elimelech and Elimelech himself die. (coughs) By the end of the story, Ruth is giving birth to Obed. That, That son, Obed, is considered Naomi's son. That son is put on Naomi's knees as if she were the one giving birth. Barren Naomi becomes the mother of children. The Lord proves himself faithful not just to Elimelech and to Naomi and their family. He proves himself faithful to Israel. He restores Israel to her maternal vocation. But the book of Ruth, excuse me, <laughs> the book of Ruth has a remarkable twist on the standard story. How did Abraham and Sarah have a child? Late in their life, after long years of trying to have a son, God intervenes and opens Sarah's womb in her old age. Miraculous birth. Rebecca is barren, but God opens Rebecca's womb. Rachel is barren, but in response to prayers, the Lord opens Rachel's womb. Miracle children. Isaac is a miracle child. Jacob and Esau are miracle children. That's not the way the story goes in the book of Ruth. If we went according to the standard story, then Naomi would have a child in her old age, and that child would be the redemption of Naomi and of her family. But that's not how it goes. There is a miracle here, but it's not the miracle of the Lord opening a womb. It's a miracle of Ruth. Ruth is the miracle in this story. It's her determination to cling to Naomi when Naomi now calls herself Mara, bitter one, 
Ruth is determined to cling to her. And it's because of Ruth's determination to stay with Naomi that Naomi's fortunes turn and Ruth's fortunes turn. This is truly a miraculous act of faith. We read it a lot. It's read at weddings. It's a good summary of a kind of wedding vow. Ruth's commitment to Naomi. But think about the circumstances. Think of what Ruth is joining herself to. Naomi looks like she's got a curse on her. And she says, the Lord is against me. He's stretched out his hand against me. She has nothing. No husband, no sons, no land, nothing. And even her God seems to be opposed to her. And Ruth says, I want to be with you and your God. I'd rather have nothing with you and your God than everything my own, uh, my own family, my own land offers me, my own gods offer me. It's not because Ruth is so, is a glutton for punishment. She's not a masochist. It's because she has such utter confidence that the God of Naomi will not leave her Mara bitter. That the God of Naomi will bring fruit from the barren woman. That she commits herself to Naomi even in the midst of her bitterness. Even when she's empty. Even when she has nothing to offer but death. Ruth wants that. She wants to be with Naomi and Yahweh against whatever else is offered to her. It's a miraculous confession of faith. And it's all the more miraculous considering Ruth's ancestry. She's a Moabite. Remember where the Moabites come from. Moab was born in a cave, along with his brother Ammon, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and his two daughters retreat to a cave, and his two daughters decide they need to give their father wine, get him drunk, seduce him, sleep with him, so they can conceive and carry children for his family, and they think perhaps for the entire human race. Maybe the fire from heaven didn't just wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe it wiped out everything. We can start the human race over again from this cave with an act of incest. That's Ruth's ancestry. That's Ruth's origin story. It's what you call a checkered past. But this Moabitess from that lineage wants to be with Naomi, wants to be with Yahweh wants to be in the land of Naomi and live and die with the people of Israel. And it's because of that, because Ruth is brought into the family of Naomi, that Naomi's family is redeemed. The barren woman gives birth. Naomi, the widow, Naomi, the old widow, Naomi, the barren woman, has a child because this Moabite associates with her and clings to her and won't let go. I think that opens up an important angle on the book of Ruth. Ruth is a good little preview of Christmas. We've got ticking all the boxes of of a Christmas story. takes place around Bethlehem. There's a mother. There's a child. There's even a woman called Mara, which comes from the same root as Miriam and Mary. But Ruth reveals to us the depths of the mystery of the gospel. 
This is not just a story of salvation, but this is a story that reveals the cunning dynamics and the cunning mechanism that God uses to save his people, Israel, and to save humanity. Salvation is of the Jews, Jesus says. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, Paul says. That's how salvation works. God calls his people Israel. He makes his people Israel a light and they shine on the Gentiles and the Gentiles come flocking to Israel. And that's what's happening in this story. You have the Gentile, Moabite, Ruth, who associates with the Israelite widow, finds an Israelite husband, is redeemed from her widowhood, has a child, carries on the line and becomes an ancestor of David and an ancestor of Jesus Christ. This is a story of salvation from the Jews to the Gentiles. But it's also the opposite. It's not just light shining from the Gentile, from the Jews to the Gentiles. It's the Jews, the Israelite widow, being restored to life by the incorporation of a Gentile into her household. It's not just salvation comes from the Jews to the Gentiles, but also the salvation of Israel depends on the incorporation of Gentiles into Israel. I think this is what Paul is getting at in Romans 9 through 11 when he's, when he's considering and lamenting Israel's rejection of Jesus. What's going on? How can Israel, who has waited all these centuries for a Messiah, how can they reject the Messiah when he comes? Paul laments, is, is in anguish over that question. But the climax, uh, the climax of that story is that the incorporation of Gentiles into Israel, the salvation of Gentiles, will bring new life to Israel herself. It will be like life from the dead. I think Paul's talking about what's happening in his own ministry. That's why he, that's why he glories in his mission to the Gentiles. Not just because it's taking the gospel and the good news to the world, as God had promised Abraham, but he sees what's going to happen to Israel when he takes the gospel to the Gentiles. As the, as the Gentiles come in, so Israel is redeemed. Ruth is that kind of story. It is a story about the salvation of a Gentile by incorporation into Israel. It's also a story about the, about the salvation of Israel because of the incorporation of a Gentile. Both Jews and Gentiles exist for the other. Jews don't exist for themselves. They exist to be a light to the Gentiles. The Gentiles coming into the the tree, being grafted into the tree of Israel, don't do that for themselves, but to bring new life to Israel. Each is conformed to Christ. Israel becomes a Christ-like people who give themselves for the sake of the Gentiles. The Gentiles become a Christ-like collection of peoples by giving themselves for the for the uh, salvation of Israel. That's what Paul is seeing in the first century, in his own ministry. Jews and Gentiles being knit together, each serving the other. And through the centuries of the church, that continues. Not just with Jews and Gentiles, that's a unique that's a unique uh, division within the within the human race. But it continues with every nation. Every nation that is brought into the continuing Israel becomes a mean for the salvation of other nations. Why do we exist as American Christians, as an American church? 
Not just for the sake of the American church. We exist for the salvation of ourselves, but also for the salvation of other nations. And they exist for our salvation. Every nation that's brought into the people of God is conformed to Christ and so exists for the salvation of the other. Just as Jews exist for the salvation of Gentiles and Gentiles for the sake of Jews. This is the mystery that Paul identifies in Romans 11. The mystery that leads him to this ecstatic expression. He begins Romans 9 in lament. He ends Romans 11 in ecstasy. Oh, the depths of the, uh, depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. That's the good news of Advent. That Israel has become the mother that produces the Christ child. But also that Israel is renewed by the incorporation of Gentiles and brought to new life. Truly in this story, we see the depths of the wisdom and the cunning of our God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for this uh, account of Ruth's life and Naomi's life. We thank you for what it reveals about your power, about your goodness, about your grace to all nations, and about the cunning and wisdom by which you saved the world. We pray that you would fill us with the joy and the awe and the ecstasy that Paul expresses, that we would have that kind of joy in this season as we contemplate the coming of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.